And so that's part of this emotional awareness and expression therapy is going through these situations with people and just helping and coaching and facilitating them to identify, recognize, express, and release powerful emotions. And it turns out when you do that, all of a sudden, guess what happens? Your pain will, after one of these sessions, the pain will, like, well, how do you feel in your body? Oh, I'm, a, I'm lighter, I'm unburdened. My pain, where's the pain? Oh yes, I'm not feeling that pain now. It's amazing, and then you can see the links between emotions and pain. And then you have even more confidence in what this model is, and more confidence that you can get better. Welcome to the Metagenics Institute podcast, a place where you can hear from leading experts in health and wellness, from scientists and researchers to internationally recognized clinicians. Enjoy this insightful conversation with host Nathan Rose. Hi everyone, welcome to another episode of Metagenics Institute podcast. I'm your host, Nathan Rose, and I'm very pleased to be joined today from Michigan with pain specialist, Dr. Howard Schubinger. Welcome, Howard. Hello, thanks for having me. Absolutely, my pleasure. So today we're here to talk about your work in pain, and uh, we're fortunate, hopefully pandemic pending, um, that we get to see you in person in August later on in 2022, but I got you here today to discuss your work and uh, some of the research you've been involved in recently on um, managing pain uh, in patients, back pain, fibromyalgia, etc. Some really fascinating work. Um, so you probably can do a much better job than I can. So can you just give us a bit of an outline of who you are, what you do, and um, a bit on your background? Yeah, sure. Well, thanks for having me. Uh, I am an internist, mainly by training, internal medicine specialist in, here in the U.S., and I've been a doctor for a long, long time, uh, and I've had a variety of different careers, but about 20 years ago, I got interested in the work of Dr. John Sarno, a physiatrist from New York City at the time, who had written a lot about back pain and the mind-body connection. And uh, I read one of his books and I asked, called him up and asked if I could work with him for a bit and see what he does. And I did that uh, for a while, just a few days really, but uh, it was enough to really spark my interest. I came back to my own hospital in Michigan and I, I set up a little clinic and I started talking to people at length. And so almost 20 years ago, I've been talking to people ever since. And every day I'm learning something new about uh, how the mind and the body are connected and the amazing power of the brain to create uh, what we experience. And I've gone on this, you know, just journey of teaching myself and learning from neuroscientists and other physicians and psychologists. Uh, about all this work, and it's it just led me to you know write some books and do some research and and really finding out that a lot of people who thought they had incurable illnesses, incurable pain conditions, could literally eliminate their pain. It was just shocking. It was just amazing, mm. and nothing. There's almost nothing that can be more satisfying 
to a doctor and, and to people who, who thought they were, you know, doomed to get their lives back. I mean, so it, it's been an amazing journey. Yeah. And um, Dr. Sano is a, a key figure. People in the field often talk about him as the pioneer. I'm curious, um, firstly, for yourself, yeah, as yeah, you said, you're an internist. Um, imagine back then it was real um, mechanistic understanding of pain. It was like structural tissue damage. Uh, and Dr. John Sano had some pretty, I suppose at the time, um, radical views. How did that resonate with you? And yeah. uh, I'm curious on your transition from the sort of mechanistic nuts and bolts to the more, you know, holistic or mind-body approach. Yeah. Um, I don't know. It wasn't a, wasn't a huge transition for me. Uh, I don't think. Uh, I was kind of interested in mind-body connection back into my younger years, even back when I was in college and medical school. Um, and so it, it was just, it just made sense. You know, it just made perfect sense what he was saying. And when you talk to people, like I said, you know, for example, one of the first patients I saw way back almost 20 years ago was a woman who had chronic headache and head pain for 17 years, every day, all day headaches. I mean, nobody, she'd been to headache clinics, she'd had injections, she'd had medications, tried everything, nothing had worked. And so how's anybody going to help her? You know, she was doomed. But she told me this story that was just very amazing. And I asked, of course, when her headache started. And she said, when she got a new pair of glasses. Well, you get a new pair of glasses, you know, you feel a little out of it from a, a day when your eyes adjust to the new prescription, but that's when she got pain. And I asked her what was going on in your life at the time when you had, when you got the new pair of glasses, when the head pain started. And she said, nothing much, everything was going well. Well, she had had a new boss and the boss was unpredictable and sometimes would get upset with her and sometimes yell at her. Okay, well, a lot of bosses do that. But it turned out her father was very unpredictable in her youth. Her father would scream and yell at her at times unpredictably for no reason. And she had learned to be very much afraid of a male authority figure screaming at her. And somehow, you know, 30, 35 years later, this triggered her pain and the pain never went away. But the pain was due to a neural circuit in her brain that had been learned and reinforced. And the harder she tried to fix it, and the more scared of it she was, and the more medication she took for it, and the more frustrated she became with it, it just got worse and worse. And within two or three months, she was perfectly fine. She was cured. It was amazing. And, you know, doctors really don't understand this connection, this process. They don't understand that stress and emotions activate the same parts of the brain that are activated when you, when you, you know, break an ankle. Yeah. So that's the, the key message um, that I've taken away so far from your work around these neural circuits. And I'd like to dive into that. So you mentioned there about um, even the glasses, like when you put a new pair of glasses on, it's all a bit fuzzy. Then, then the, the sort of the brain adjusts, and it's the the brain that sort of constructs the constructs the world in the same 
Uh, and in a similar view, um, with pain, our, our brains sort of, as I understand, construct what it means to be in pain, whether there's actually a stimuli or not. So um, with you know, much more skill, can you please <laughs> describe this idea of neural circuits? Yeah, yeah, you're doing a good job, Nathan. <laughs> <laughs> uh, our brain creates what we experience. We don't see with our eyes. We see with our brain. The visual cortex in our brain creates what we see. And what it creates is based on what we've seen in the past, what we expect to see, what we, what we, um, what we understand as vision, what we hear is constructed by our brain. You know, when you hear a different language, foreign language, you don't, you just hear, you know, noise. But if you know the language, you know the words and the sounds, all of a sudden it becomes completely intelligible. That's because of our brains. And our brains create what we feel. When you touch a hot stove, it's not your finger causing pain. It's actually the brain. And this is a revolutionary finding. And as you pointed out, it is common for the brain to create pain, physical pain, real pain, in the absence of a tissue injury. And this occurs all the time in normal, healthy people. You don't have to be uh, anxious or depressed or anything like that because we have a warning signal in our brain, a danger alarm signal that's built in. And I, I heard something the other day that was really interesting. Uh, this person was talking about our forebears, you know, like cavemen kind of thing, right? Yeah. And, uh, and Neanderthals didn't survive in the world for the most part. They, but they were stronger, faster, smarter, you know, than human beings. The human beings survived as a species, and the reason is most likely because they lived in groups, in clans, in tribes. And we banded together as human beings, and that gave us a tremendous survival edge. And what he was saying is that if you got kicked out of the clan, you would die. So getting kicked out of the clan is a social ostracization. And it turns out that social ostracization can cause physical pain. Our brains are have learned over millennia to create pain, physical pain, when we have an injury to alert us, to alarm us. And it also has learned to create physical pain when we are socially ostracized or socially criticized or socially endangered. Wow. And so, you know, it's an amazing way to think about it, you know, to understand how powerful these processes are in our brains that, you know, the other day I was typing, sitting at my desk typing, and I, I was in a kind, of a, uh, a, a kind of a conflict with some people I was writing a paper about. And they were saying, do it this way. And I was saying, no, do it this way. You know, it's like, big deal, whatever. But we were, you know, I felt strongly about it. Yeah. Right? I was passionate about this issue. And I was typing away. And all of a sudden, my back just seized up in tightness, you know. <laughs> like out of the blue, like what happened? Well, my brain created this real physical pain and tightness of my back muscles because uh, it was reacting to the social and emotional processes going on in my brain. I mean, that's amazing, right? Yeah. It happens yeah. all the time. Yeah. So our brains don't really distinguish between physical and emotional pain. It can still manifest in these somatic symptoms. Exactly. And it can be, you know, our brain, it's not only pain, our brain can produce insomnia when we're upset about something. Everybody knows that. Mm 
Our brain can produce anxiety, depression, fatigue is a really common one. Our brain is really good at pro producing fatigue. And why is that? Because if you catch a virus, your brain is going to produce fatigue so that you'll rest. It's not actually the virus that mm. causes the fatigue. It's actually the brain as a protective mechanism. Yeah. Right? And it's amazing to think about this so we understand the power of the brain to create our experience. In that um, theme, um, I've been wondering, is it a bug or is it a feature of our sort of software? Like through evolution, um, it's probably been been more advantageous to have these um these sort of false negatives um that's a uh you know it's better to be wrong nine a hundred times out of a hundred than um you know overestimate and think things would be fine um one time out of a hundred because you're better off yeah. being conservative because um obviously to preserve your life so do you think yeah is it a, a feature is it a bug um but i suppose yeah why do why do you think our brains are overzealous in alarm yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, in a way, we're, we're, we're giving, we're taking the brain, which is this really inanimate object, and we're saying, oh, we're giving it a personality, you know, we're giving it reasoning. And, you know, you know, why does it do what it does, you know? And, it, you know, is it, a, is it a false alarm? Is it a bug in the system? Or is it just doing its job? I kind of think of it as it's just doing its job. You know, it's alarming us. You know, a smoke alarm alarms us. And if, if the smoke alarm is set a little bit more sensitive, it may alarm us when there's only a little bit of smoke. And maybe yeah. it's set, other smoke alarms may be set in a way that it doesn't alarm you until the house is, you know, halfway burned down. <laughs> <laughs> and human beings are like that. Everyone has an alarm mechanism in their brain. And people's mechanisms are set at different levels of sensitivity. And that may be in partly learned obviously, because people who've had trauma in their life, childhood trauma, their sensitization is going to be much higher. They're going to be more likely to have this uh, alarm feature go off with maybe less stress in later life as compared to somebody who didn't have adverse childhood experiences. And maybe some of it's genetic as well. So there's a variety of ways that our brains learn to be more or less sensitive uh, to uh uh, ongoing stress or emotions or trauma. And, uh, and, and for some people, you know, they may, you know, some people are extremely afraid of snakes. Other people, you know, are afraid mm. of heights. <laughs> you know, some people are afraid of being criticized because, you know, maybe they were criticized as a child. Right. Uh, some people are afraid of uh, people, you know, like if, if, you're, if you're, your kid starts drinking, well, if you had alcoholism in your family, a kid starting to drink, if you have alcoholism in your family, that could set off wild, strong alarm mechanism, whereas for somebody else it might not. Yeah. So with the this uh these circuits, I notice you've um I I presume sort of more deliberately remain um big picture and don't drill down into the like the neurotransmitters and the amygdala and the insula. Um, which has its benefits, I think, um, to be able to tell a, a nice, easy story to our patients. But on the flip side, like in science, we always want to know, you know, what's the the fault and which are the, the you know, the heroes and the villains in the brain. Um, so can you compare and contrast other specific areas and why do you prefer to sort of stay more, you know, high level when you're discussing these areas? Yeah. 
Yeah, well, I like to stay. I have two reasons for staying what you're calling high level. One, so I think it's accurate. And two, because it makes it a lot easier for a feeble-minded person such as me. Okay. <laughs> I wrote a paper as a brilliant young neuro, neuroscientist named Ian Kleckner. And uh, he, he's taught me a lot. And uh, we wrote a paper together, our book chapter, uh, for a book uh, put out by the Psychophysiologic Disorders Association, a textbook. And uh, I kept saying, well, what about the insula? What about the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex, you know? And he's like, what about the amygdala? He's like, yeah, it's the brain. <laughs> he's, the, he's the neuroscientist, right? And, and because it's very complex, it's neurocircuitry, right? These are yeah. circuits and they're not even exactly the same circuit. Like you think of, you know, I mean, people think of it like, oh, there's all these train tracks, Mm. Well, there's a train track for this, a train track for that, but that's even that even that conceptualization is probably too mechanistic, right? Because basically, there's neurons, and there's you know billions of neurons in the, in the brain, and they can all connect in so many different ways, and then reconnect in other ways, forming these forming these electrical circuits that are fluid and reversible. So. We do know, for example, in our, in our uh, back pain study that we published through the lab of uh, Tor Wager, brilliant, brilliant neuroscientist and expert in pain and fMRI, he's now at Dartmouth University. Uh, we did the study at the University of Colorado when he was there. And, um, and you know, we found specific features on fMRI of the brains in people who, in our study, recovered from pain, and we had pre and post fMRI. You know, when the connection between the insulin and the prefrontal cortex, uh, you know, varied based on if they were in pain or not. So we could document that and we can prove that there's features in the brain that have changed. But you know what? The brain changes when you learn to play the violin. Yeah. The brain, the brain changes when you, you know, when you, uh, you know, when you, deal with different social conditions in your life. Brain's always changing. Yeah. And our genes, the genes in our brain can, can be modified by our environment. And so people have, I think, like you were talking about mechanistically, they have the mistaken idea that if you, if your parents had migraine, then you have migraine, it's because of your genes. Well, the genes, it's true that people have genetic predisposition for migraine, but the genes can turn on and off based on what level of stress and emotionality uh, is going on in our lives. Yeah, fascinating. And so do you get much sort of um, skepticism or resistance by not um, speaking about, yeah, these, you know, insula and the amygdala and dopamine or whatever, um, when you keep it sort of broad and speak about these circuits, it, it still lands well with patients and colleagues and so forth? Well, what I love about talking to people about this is it just makes common sense. Yeah. When you explain it, you can explain it in the way the brain has this danger mechanism. It's going to be triggered when you when the brain feels you're endangered and the brain can feel you're endangered by walking or sitting. I saw a guy yesterday, he has much more back pain when he lies down than when he stands or walks or bends. Like, okay, I mean, that, that makes no sense, right? Yeah. When you're lying down, that's putting your back at ease. But that's when his back hurts. Why does his back hurt when he does that? Well, it's just because his brain learned that. 
you know, why? I mean, I don't know, but that's what his brain learned. It has those connections. It makes that association. And it's just something his brain learned because you, it's common sense that he's not injuring his back by lying down. <laughs> yeah. So people can understand that the activity, once they understand that our brain creates our experience, then they can understand that it's the brain doing this in certain situations as opposed to other situations. And um, with people with pain, particularly like back pain, um, you know, they've often had an MRI that shows a herniated disc or there's some sort of age-related, if you want to call it, um, tissue damage. Um, Mm -hmm. I understand that you still, as a clinician, you rule out organic causes, um, but... Do people have these sort of conditioning as well that, oh, it's, you know, I've got this scan that says there's a, you know, misalignment or there's a herniation. Um, do you find it challenging to um, explain to them that's that may or may not be the cause and there is still this sort of neural circuit going on contributing to the pain? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, it's challenging for some people to let go of the notion that their back is damaged, especially when an MRI shows what's been told to them as clear evidence of damage. Uh, And it's sad, it's really sad that physicians are continuing to this day, even though we know that the majority of people have abnormal MRIs. There's a video that I put out, a cartoon video, animated video, called All MRIs Are Abnormal. And it's really nice. I did it with a great neuro, uh, orthopedic surgeon named Sorab Galagli. And, uh, and uh, it, it's, it's sad because everyone knows, and every doctor should know that all MRIs are abnormal, even in 20 and 30-year-olds. Uh, mm. But anyway, so it's, chal- it's hard for some patients to let go of that. But what we're doing is just, just using the evidence, just using the logic, understanding how the brain works, and then showing them like, well, why does it that the, like this guy with the pain that's lying down, or why does it, it hurts when you're sitting in that chair, but it doesn't hurt when you're riding a bike. I mean, you're still sitting down, right? So we're demonstrating to people the inconsistency of what's going on so that hopefully they can actually see it for themselves. And some people will get that and be so excited, so excited because we're telling them this with love, right? The key ingredient here, Nathan, is compassion. If you don't care for people, if they, if they don't know you care for them, why would they listen to you? Yeah. Right? And, and we have to, and we do that, and we have to do that so they know that we're just, have their best interests at heart. We love them. We care for them. We want the best for them. And we're giving them the best information we can. And, you know, they can, they can do with it what they want. Yeah. You know, we're telling them it's not all in your head. It's not imaginary. It's real pain. You know, we're, you're not making it up. You're not crazy. It's not your fault. It's not because you want this problem. It's just your brain has learned it for reasons that are obvious because of what's going on in your life. It's very clear. Uh, and so a lot of patients are so happy and so mm. excited. You know, they say three things. Number one, I'm so glad it's not all in my head. Number two, I'm so glad it is in my brain, <laughs> <laughs> right? Because it's reversible. And then they say, how come no one else told me about this? Yeah, right. 
yeah, it must be liberating for, for many patients um, to know that it, there, it can be treated and cured. Um, so there are other tip-offs you're looking for. I think you mentioned some around like um, the unusual coupling to the pain when it's you know, at rest. Um, is there like timing? I think you talk about like people's pain comes on a Monday before work starts. Um, it's wandering. Yeah. So there's there's a lot of tip-offs that it's not just structural because it's got these sort of strange occurrences. Yeah, those are really, really important because, like I say, they, they demonstrate. When you have, you know, you have pain on the right side of your back on Monday and on the left side of your back on Tuesday, or, you know, you have pain in your stomach on, on Wednesday and in your head on Thursday, you know, there's a shifting moving. The pain occurs on one arm and then it goes to the other arm. I mean, these are amazing occurrences that are so important to to look for carefully and document and and help people understand because you know when we think about the brain you know is it doing its job or not we talked about that a, you know a couple of minutes ago right the brain is trying to protect us and i think you know that it's showing us when it's when the pain is shifting from one place to another when it's triggered by sitting in one chair but not another when it's occurring on, you know, on your way to your in-laws house, uh, when it's occurring during work, but not on vacation, uh, when it's occurring because of cold weather or lights or sound or computer screens, our brain is showing us, it's saying, look, here it is, <laughs> here I am, <laughs> right? It's me, <laughs> I'm just warning you, but it's up to you to interpret the message. You know, our brain doesn't have the ability to tap us on the shoulder and say, you know, Nathan, you know, I really want you to, you know, you really need to pay attention to what's going on at work because, uh, you know, it's really troubling to you. And if you don't do something about it, you know, you're going to, you know, you're going to suffer consequences. It, it just gives you the pain. And then you're like, okay, yeah. now I've got another, I've got a work problem and I've got a pain problem. But it turns <laughs> out <laughs> the work problem is the pain problem. <laughs> Now for a short break to share a clinical gem. Ariana had a history of anxiety and panic attacks, which had worsened due to the COVID-19 pandemic. When she sought the help of naturopath Nikki Callan, she had been housebound for a month due to the severity of her condition. Nikki prescribed Ariana a combination of lavender oil, L-theanine and lemon balm. After just three days, Ariana reported she was a lot calmer and felt more comfortable to leave the house and go for a walk. What's more, she went from having just one hour sleep per night to four to six hours. This combination of ingredients continues to support Ariana's mental health and Nikki is so pleased to hear it. To learn more about lavender oil, L-theanine and lemon balm, please visit metagenicsinstitute.com.au. That's our clinical gem for the day. Now back to the show. And you've mentioned um, some pain is literally like symbolic uh, where the pain occurs and almost like a, a metaphorical meaning to it. Yeah, I mean, that's, again, really interesting to point out. Sometimes it's very amazing. I, I, I have a friend I saw the other day and he was having this pain right in the side, you know, right in his side. And uh, he, had, he had an employee that was just not doing his job and it was a problem on and on again. And eventually he had to let the employee go. 
And all of a sudden the pain vanished. And I'm like, oh, maybe he was a thorn in your side. And he goes, <laughs> oh my God, of course. <laughs> uh, and, you know, if you're, if you're a kid and you're getting bullied at school, what do you think is going to happen? You're going to get stomach pain on school days. And you're, you're, what is your brain telling you? Don't go to school, right? It's trying to protect you, which it's sending a message. Don't mm. go to school. School is dangerous for mm. you, right? Uh, and sometimes, sometimes uh, pain will be contagious. You can, you can get it from somebody else. <laughs> yeah. Socially contagious. You can read about it. You can read about a certain problem and all of a sudden your brain goes, oh yeah, that's, that's one that, you know, we, we could, we could do, we could do that. Uh, you know, if you're in a state of fear or alarm or stress or pressure as, you know, cause really the pain is not the problem. The pain is the solution that your brain has devised. And that's a, just a revolutionary and, and shocking statement. Yeah. On that, um, yeah. I've heard you talk about, the disparity between um, lower back pain between East and West Germany um, before the, the the fall of the, the Berlin Wall, and also, which I, it surprised me, but when I think about it more, it makes sense. There's there seems to be a, a cultural element to back pain, like in America versus I think the Middle East, that um, there's massive differences. Um, yeah, yeah, can you explain? You know, because back pain. It, it, you know, on the superficial level, yeah, it's wear and tear and you're strained and do this and that. But, um, and even I think now kids are experiencing more back pain than ever, yet we're probably more idle. So, yeah, can you describe some of the, the flavors yeah. of back pain throughout the cultures? Yeah, yeah. First of all, back in the US, back pain is literally the prevalence of back pain is just about doubled in the last decade or so. Why would it be going up so much? Teenagers are having much, much more commonly having back pain than ever before. Um, this is a cultural phenomenon. It turns out anxiety and depression rates are, are also soaring, which is not surprising and not a coincidence. Um, a friend of mine who was from the Middle East told me that he almost never saw people with back pain as a doctor in the Middle East. But when he came to America, it's one of the most common complaints seen by physicians here. I have another friend who was in West Africa. He said he never saw people with back pain there. It's not to say that maybe people never had back pain, but it wasn't conceived of as a problem. And it wasn't the way the brain reacted. And this is the cultural phenomenon, because I was talking to my friend who was from the Middle East, and I said, well, you know, here in the U.S., from my point of view, uh, a lot of back pain is due to stress and emotions and is non-structural. And we have data to show that by mm. We have some data now that 85% of people with chronic back pain do not have a structural problem to account for the back pain. So I said, but what about where, you know, where you were from in the Middle East? Obviously there's stress, there's stress everywhere. What do people have? And he said, oh yeah, of course. <laughs> people that I saw high rates of uh, nasal problems, congestion, asthma, allergies, and um, what we would call conversion disorders, where mm. people were uh, had episodes where they were unable to walk or talk or move. 
And these were often what he saw as the stressful life events. And it's not to say that people can't have asthma from a structural problem or nasal and congestion problems from structural problems. That can occur, of course. Um, but he found that when he, because he was working in a hospital with lots of people with asthma in the hospital, and they didn't have enough of the medication, the um, albuterol, you know, right. these uh, bronchodilators to go around in the aerosol treatments. And so he would routinely give everybody the placebo, the saline treatment, first time around, because if that worked, then he wouldn't have to use this short supply of the albuterol. And he said it was amazing how often the placebo treatment worked. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so interesting. Uh, do you think that back pain is like a, a cultural, culturally legitimate like injury? Say, you know, you, you can't go to work because your back's playing up here in you know the, the Western countries, whereas maybe like those sort of conversion disorders, are, which are really stigmatized perhaps still here in the West, are more acceptable and in the east and and that's how the the, the pain is manifesting as a, a way of slowing you down or you know creating that yeah. sort of introspection i think that's true i think it's true that uh uh you know it's very complex of why the brain would produce which type of sim which type of uh alarm mechanism which type of symptom uh, in a particular person at a particular time uh, but clearly back pain is, is common in, in the West because of cultural phenomenon, because it's acceptable, because it makes sense, because everybody has it, it's contagious, because, and because people are often doing jobs that are, uh, you know, physical. Uh, there was a really great study uh, from, um, I believe it was from Finland, where they uh, looked at people working in factories who had musculoskeletal pain syndromes. And it turned out the thing that predicted whether they were going to have musculoskeletal pain was not how much or what kind of physical activity they were doing. It was more related to how their bosses treated them. And that was a really interesting thing. And so any anybody who runs a company out there, if you're listening and you want to reduce your disability, you want to reduce musculoskeletal pains and other and other uh you know, mind body type neural circuit illnesses in your workforce, treat them good, treat them well, listen to them, care for them, uh, respect them. Those kind of things make a huge difference in your workforce and, and how yeah. they, and how they, uh, how they are, what their health is. Again, intuitively, it makes a lot of sense, doesn't it? And so I want to turn our attention now to, to therapies. Um, you've published a lot about this and you, um, both in the literature and, um, your own material. Uh, you mentioned recently you involved in this, uh, lower back pain study is something Boulder, Colorado that was published in the, the JAMA of psychiatry. The and yeah, please correct me if I'm wrong. The way I've sort of grouped this in my mind that this pain reprocessing therapy that you just published on essentially to me looks at um, the unlearning the pain, like it's it's um, identifying and sort of trying to calm this alarm circuit down, and sort of contrast some of the other therapies are more about looking at the motions behind um, the pain. Is that yeah. Yeah, accurate. correct. Yeah, very accurate. If just to put it in context, what I would say is that 
you know, for people who have chronic pain, first thing we want to do is assess them and make sure they don't have a structural problem. They don't have a tumor, an infection, a fracture, some kind of autoimmune disease, some kind of inflammatory disease to account for a structural problem. First, we want to rule those out. Um, uh, because if we do that, then we can say this is purely a neural circuit condition as opposed to a mixed or combined situation. Uh, if they have a purely neural circuit condition, then we can say, oh, then we do uh, pain education and understanding how the brain works and what predictive coding is and some of the stuff we talked about earlier. And then we want to demonstrate to them how this is active in their lives, as we were talking about in terms of the triggers for it and the inconsistency, the variation, the connection to stress, etc. Once we do that, then we have two major what we have, and there's lots, lots of ways of calming the danger signal in the brain. It's not like we have a lock on the only ones, but the two ones that we've used in our studies, one is pain reprocessing and the other is emotional awareness and expression therapy. The pain reprocessing is directly to calm the danger signal in the brain by lowering their fear of the pain, their focus on it, their frustration with it. So they can understand it. They can respond to the sensations with, with calm, with understanding, with a smile, with keeping going and, and teaching their brain in a whole variety of ways that they're safe and not in danger. And it's amazing how powerful that is. And in our back pain study in Boulder, it was a randomized controlled trial and of the 50 people randomized to our arm of the study, the mind-body treatment arm. Uh, the 45 of them were evaluated, and of the 45, 43 did not have a structural cause for their pain. 43 out of 45 did not have a structural cause for their pain after evaluation by me. <laughs> and, uh, and of the 44 that we actually treated with this pain reprocessing therapy, as I described, uh, 33 of them were virtually pain-free in one month. That's 75%. Wow. It's an amazing outcome. And the average duration of pain was 10 years. Wow. The average duration of back pain was 10 years. So uh, we were very excited to publish that, as you mentioned, in JAMA Psychiatry uh, a couple months ago now. Yeah, and the pain, um, the the benefits also held for up to a year, didn't it? Correct. Thank you for pointing that out. <laughs> <laughs> because most pain studies have found that the benefit wanes after a few weeks or a few months. Yeah, and we had sustained relief for a year. So yeah, we're that's really important because we're teaching people, uh, you know, how to uh, change their relationship to their brain, their body, their life, and their back pain. Um, and it wasn't just back pain, because a lot of people with back pain have other mm. things like headaches, like migraine, like irritable bowel syndrome, etc. And so, you know, the beauty of this therapy is it, it treats any of these mind-body or neural circuit type conditions. And the other thing is that people learn about themselves, because they learn, oh, you know, what's, why did it, why did it come to this? Oh, because I'm so hard on myself. Well, maybe I can change that. Yeah, right. It's because I'm in a relationship that needs some adjusting or I need a different job or, or I need to deal with uh, some of the emotional stuff that came up in my life. 
Wow. And that leads us to the other treatment, the emotional processing one, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, I just might just stick on the, the pain reprocessing therapy for a moment too, a couple of things. Um, that was compared to, was it CBT? So that wasn't, it wasn't no, placebo, it was, it was or usual care or something? Yeah, it was compared. There were two other treatment arms in that three-arm study at the University of Colorado. Uh, the, one arm was the treatment-as-usual arm, so no specific treatment other than what they were getting. And the other arm was a back injection. It was a placebo back ah, injection. Okay, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, this pain reprocessing therapy, as I understand, like there's this unconscious beast that's sort of creating this pain. It's just really, it's pl pleasing to hear and surprising that our sort of conscious and um, guided sort of, uh, you know, thoughts and directions can tame this thing. Um, and I was really interested in this idea of you got the education and you're giving people the evidence, like feedback that, um, you know, hey, look, you see it's here on Wednesday and not on Thursday, that this tells us that it's uh, this, these circuits are active. Um, but this um, concept of um, reevaluating the pain and like burning, burning a sensation probably formally caused alarm, but it's almost like educating people to experience the this sensation realize that it actually doesn't hurt like it's it feels like jumping into a, a spa bath or something Do, can you describe yeah. this sort of um reappraising yeah that's really a great way to describe it um what i tell people is that we've learned to reappraise a variety of sensations like coffee whoever liked coffee the first yeah. time <laughs> beer whiskey you know we love these things <laughs> But they're not pleasant. They're kind of unpleasant sensations that we've learned to reappraise, to interpret in different ways. Hot sauna, exactly, as you mentioned. So uh, what we're teaching people is that the signals that they're getting from their brain, the sensations are actually not dangerous. Uh, they're not harming them. And if they can, instead of dreading them and fearing them, they can look forward to them as an opportunity to practice training their brain out of this out of the neural circuits and they can train their brain out of it by reappraising it, by interpreting it as not dangerous, by allowing themselves to feel it if they can with less fear and with interest and curiosity, uh, leaning into the sensation. Uh, and uh, one of the other things that we, we do once people get to a point where they can do this is to really not be afraid of it, is to, is to say to their brain, okay, Go ahead, give it to me. Give me more. <laughs> you know, I'm not afraid. I, I can handle it. Yeah. I'm okay. And it's amazing how powerful these, it, you, you can't believe it until you see it. You can't believe it when someone, you know, people are, their mind are just blown when they go, okay, all right, okay, give me, they say to their brain, literally have this relationship with their brain because they're giving feedback to their brain. Because when you're in pain, you're giving thousands of messages every day to your own brain of danger and fear and, and dread. And this negative feedback continues. So, you know, if, if they say, okay, brain, give me more, and then the pain goes down, they're going, holy God, that's amazing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's incredible. So as you mentioned, these people sounds like some of them had their own sort of insights and epiphanies about connecting the emotions to the pain um, to use as a segue to your other branch of therapy, this emotional awareness. This is where, as I understand that, 
you're not so much retraining the brain about assessing and reappraising the pain, but um, in groups, often looking at um, different emotions and and using um, protocols to help process those emotions. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and this was, you know, Mark Lumley and I worked together. He's a great uh, psychologist, brilliant guy. And by the way, Alan Gordon was really responsible in large part for the pain reprocessing yes. therapy, putting that together. Uh, Mark Lumley and I put together the emotional awareness and expression therapy as part of a research study that we did on fibromyalgia. But Mark and I learned all of this, a lot of it anyway, from Alan Abbas, our, our great mentor and collaborator in Halifax at Dalhousie University. And Dr. Abbas is one of the foremost researchers and teachers in the therapy field of intensive short-term dynamic psychotherapy. Uh, and there's there's dozens of studies now on ISTDP showing its efficacy in pain and somatic syndromes and also anxiety and depression. Um, and so Mark Lumley and I developed this of kind of a briefer and more simple version of ISTDP <laughs> uh, for this research study. And so we called it Emotional Awareness and Expression Therapy. And what it consists of is helping people to identify the emotions that are connected to the onset of their pain and how those emotions linked back to situations that have occurred in their life, such as trauma or uh, physical abuse, emotional abuse, sexual abuse, abandonment, neglect, criticism, etc. And when people can identify the, uh, the situations and can allow themselves to experience the feelings, ex instead of stuffing down the emotions of anger, to allow themselves to experience the anger that they had toward a colleague or a boss or a child or a parent or a, uh, uh, an assaulter, to allow them to express those feelings in safe and healthy ways in a powerful way, all of a sudden there's this release and the anger can come up and then it can come out and then it can be released and they can let go of it instead of it festering inside. And when the anger comes up and out and is released, then all of a sudden there opens the door to other emotions such as uh, possibly feeling guilt or sadness and then we can help them allow themselves to feel other feelings. And if they're feeling sadness and grief, then that can come out. That doesn't have to be held inside. And all of it turns and moves toward compassion. Because our work isn't really about anger. It's about compassion. And Dr. Abbas taught me that. <laughs> and so what happens is people then can really, can really allow themselves to feel compassion for themselves and compassion for the younger self, their child, who was them, who was hurt in some ways. And oftentimes people who were hurt or abandoned or neglected or abused in some ways, even if sometimes mild ways, they often learn not to be kind to themselves. So many people, it's so easy for them to be kind to others, but not as kind to themselves. And so that's part of this emotional awareness and expression therapy is going through these situations with people and just helping and coaching and facilitating them to identify, recognize, express, and release powerful emotions. And it turns out when you do that, all of a sudden, guess what happens? Your pain will 
after the, one of these sessions, the pain was like, well, how do you feel in your body? Oh, I'm, I'm lighter. I'm unburdened. My pain, where's the pain? Oh, yes, I'm not feeling that pain now. And it's amazing. And then you can see the links between emotions and pain. And then you have even more confidence in what this model is and more confidence that you can get better. And you're getting better not only from the pain, you're getting better in terms of how you feel about yourself and how you can basically alter the memories of traumatic situations. Wow. Well, it's probably a whole nother podcast all in there. Um, <laughs> it sounds like a lot. Yeah, it's amazing. So um, these people probably going into the therapy are not aware of like, you know, a single traumatic event that they can pin it on. I mean, as we go through life, we accumulate, you know, stresses and traumas and so forth. Yeah. Um, I mean, I'm thrilled that there's you're getting such amazing results. I'm, I suppose, surprised that people can identify these emotions or is it um it's not about so much finding that single event as a mu- as opposed to how they're currently feeling and how much anger they're currently possessing are you yeah. trying to are you trying to sort of pinpoint a moment in time or is it more just how they're feeling now and some of their emotions that are affecting their pain i i think it's a mixture you know it depends on the person okay uh, some people, it's really an accumulation of things, and there's not anything in particular, as you point out, that they can pinpoint, but it's a lot of things, and they can deal with those things. Sometimes the things may seem small to them. Oh, yeah, that didn't really matter, but maybe it did. Mm. And in other people, there's very, very specific major things, you know, that, that went on. I'm, I'm seeing a woman uh, uh, with, with pain. Who had a uh, motor vehicle accident, mm. and the person, the you know, the person who hit her uh, caused uh, per, you know permanent paralysis. That's a pretty major event. Yeah, <laughs> and uh, you know, her pain started afterwards, and her pain does move around and shift and change in a whole variety of ways. So it makes me think that it's not pain due to a structural problem, mm. as opposed it's due to a neural circuit problem, and. You know, there's a very specific thing, and there's a lot of emotions, you know, around that. And when you go through people's lives, sometimes it's very clear that, you know, yeah, I had stomach pains when I was bullied at school. I, yeah. I got headaches when I was uh, I was uh, cheated on and uh, by a, a romantic partner in high school, and I got irritable bowel and pelvic pain when my uh, my partner uh, betrayed me. And then I got back pain and neck pain after a minor fender bender car accident. And, you know, those, you know, all of a sudden it's like right out there. Yeah, true. <laughs> you can lay yeah. it all out. Yeah. <laughs> so in your um, research, uh, I, I assume for like brevity, you, you did it in group sessions uh, in some of these studies, I understand. That would have been powerful, I imagine, with, and, how was that to manage as well, like with all these emotions and personalities and whether they help each other or was it challenging or do you think you got um, compounding healing or <laughs> with the group? What was that like? It's very challenging to do group therapy, especially group therapy uh, 
when you're dealing with powerful emotions like mm. as opposed to going through a workbook. <laughs> you can do group therapy going through a workbook. It's not that hard. Yeah. But doing this kind of work, it is very challenging. And I've done a lot of those groups. I'm not currently doing those groups, but there are lots of other people in the country, in our country, in the U.S. anyway, who are doing these groups, uh, who are very skilled uh, uh, practitioners. You can see evidence of this. If you want to look at the film, This Might Hurt, Oh, yeah. uh, the documentary This Might Hurt Film.com is available and it shows doing this kind of emotional awareness and expression work uh, that was filmed. Uh, this is when I was running uh, some of these groups. A very powerful film uh, made by Kent uh, Bassett and Marianne Cunningham. Uh, so you can see that if anyone's interested. <laughs> and uh, people can really help each other can you know you can you can demonstrate you know someone can say hey here's here's what happened to me and this is what you know this is how i'm feeling about it and then the next person goes yeah well something happened to me and you know what i i have strong feelings about it as well so it can be uh, can be an amazing mm. uh, process uh, done in that way excellent i'll look up that film all right, we're about to draw to a close. So you've gone through some yeah, fascinating topics. So maybe just a bit of a takeaway and um, then look at if people, patients, practitioners want to find out more, where to go to. So, you know, what's your sort of elevator um, pitch around pain um, and the benefits of using these therapies? Yeah, I mean, there's there's a lot going on. You know, more and more people are discovering uh, these connections. Uh, more and more uh, physicians and therapists are learning about this. More and more patients are getting better. But it's a slow, uh, slow process. Uh, there's still a tremendous amount of people who, and doctors and therapists who are not really aware of this kind of work. But everybody can do their part. Uh, you know, we are... Uh, you can put up my email on this thing, hschubiner at gmail.com. People can email me. I've got a mailing list, and we send out announcements about training opportunities if people want to have training in this kind of work, uh, research that comes out, uh, new books that come out, uh, new programs for people. Uh, and I can send you – actually, I'll send you uh, something that I just wrote up, just some – a lot of resources. And there's two great websites. There's a nonprofit organization called the PPDA, the Psychophysiologic Disorders Association, which is ppdassociation.org. Uh, nonprofit, professional-run, based organization with tons of, of bibliography and resources for patients and providers. There's the tmswiki.org, tmswiki.org, peer-run, patient uh, support groups and resources, two great websites. Uh, my website is unlearnyourpain.com. Um, and there's so many books now and, and so many online programs and so many therapists who do this work uh, in person and remotely that uh, there's just a lot more resources for providers who want to learn about it and patients who want uh, relief. Thank you. I'll put all those links in the show notes. I appreciate that. Uh, 
Howard, I can see how, yeah, you've been consumed with this for the better part of a couple of decades and um, it's making such a big difference. Um, yeah, hopefully we can spread the word and um, I look forward to meeting you, hopefully in face-to-face in August later on this year. Yeah, well, you're, you're running a conference and I'm excited. I've never been to Australia before. I'm very excited about it. I work with Hal Greenham. We have a, little, we have a program called freedomfromchronicpain.com. And he and I run that, and he's Australian, of course. And he spoke at your conference uh, a couple of right. years ago. Uh, so, uh, you know, it's it, it'll be great to meet you in person and and uh, get to see some of the sites that are so, you know, world-renowned uh, down under. Fantastic. Well, thanks again for your time. It's incredible work you're doing. Uh, I really appreciate it and look forward to seeing you later on this year. Thanks, Nathan. Take care. For useful links and resources, make sure you check out the show notes. The information provided in this episode is for educational purposes only and is not intended to be a substitute for health and medical care. Always consult a healthcare professional for medical advice.